Paul Steeling White is the executive director of Transport Alternatives, a non-profit organisation in New York City whose mission is to reclaim the streets of New York from cars by promoting safer, quieter, more healthy alternatives such as walking, cycling and using public transport. He came to Australia as a keynote speaker for the 2018 Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management National Conference in Perth. He is clearly not afraid to stand up and state his case, which he does with passion, but not with vindictiveness. He has had to push against some entrenched, old-fashioned thinking. After the conference, we had a chat about using all your available armoury, understanding where your opponents are coming from, and pursuing new ways of engaging the community. Paul, the other day you managed to get a one-on-one meeting with uh, what you might be your nemesis uh. in New York. Uh, that's very good. How did you manage to do that? Well, you know, Governor Cuomo, depending on the day, can either be our ally or our, our nemesis. You know, as advocates in New York City, which is a very tough town, you've got to really use every tool in the box. So on that particular day, I was arrested with a number of other people for blocking the street outside Governor Cuomo's office. We were trying to get his attention so that he would put his political might behind extending and expanding our very successful speed safety camera program. But, you know, on any given day, we might be issuing research or policy papers or doing some, you know, media work, legislation and and lobbying. But sometimes you really just have to put it on the line. And so standing there in the street with mothers who'd lost kids due to speeding drivers is something I would do again, you know, in a heartbeat. And in that case, it was a bit of a stunt. You know, we were out there trying to get attention, trying to get the governor's attention. And as you point out, the very next day, we had our meeting and it was a, um, a moment, I think, for us to put this on the governor's radar in uh, a very forceful way. But it's not the only armory or the artillery that you've got. It, it was one, the right one for the right time. Precisely. You know, and so I think we have a pretty diverse toolbox at my organization and in our movement in New York. And as you point out, the trick is knowing when to use the right tool at the right time. I've heard it best described as you're trying to create an orchestra because as an advocate, you're a one note band. You know, people know my point of view on things. But when I'm using my energy to build a coalition of business and health and other interests and they're saying it, It really is the orchestra that can, uh, as my friend said, makes politicians get up and dance. A one-note band does not. And so the success of our organization, our movement in New York, I think has had a lot to do with the extent to which we have been able to reach outside our own comfort zone and empower and activate new voices for people-friendly streets. I'll come on to that very strongly. I think there's some things. But where was he coming from, the governor? I think it's true everywhere that politics are difficult and that often it's not the issue at hand, it's other issues that are influencing the issue or it's a history of distrust and dysfunction as is the the state with our state government. I think for Cuomo, it was him not prioritizing this issue as something to push through the state legislature. So in this case, it was just a matter of elevating the issue to up the priority chain so that he was expending his precious political capital to uh, you know, wrangle it through the legislature. So I don't think that's particularly unique in the world. I'm sure, you know, similar dynamics mm. elsewhere. But I, I do think that right now what we have in New York is uniquely dysfunctional in that there is virtually nothing happening within our state legislature. It's like really at a standstill. Nothing's getting through. Nothing's getting passed. 
And this has to do with a long history of very complicated politics between the Democrats and Republicans in this interstitial body called the uh, this independent caucus. But that's neither here nor there. I, th- I think the, the point is that in order to make traffic, transportation, safety an issue, you've really got to fight. And right now, I think we are in a place in New York where the state of our streets, the state of our transportation system is right up there with education, housing, other big issues. And that wasn't always the case. It's also part of those things too, really, isn't it? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. It connects all of those things. And, and so that's one of the points we strive to make. And really using our crises in creative ways. I mean, uh, right now, one of our main subway lines is about to be shut down for 18 months for repairs. It was damaged during Hurricane Sandy, one of the critical tunnels under the East River connecting Manhattan and Brooklyn. And so it's an opportunity to see what the streets can really do when they are designed and managed for efficiency, for the throughput of people and not just cars. And so we have convinced both the Department of Transportation and the uh, MTA Transit Authority to undertake a people way solution where, that's what we call it, it's a marketing term, but to really take the arterial streets that are parallel to the subway above ground and completely reorient them around buses, bicycles, and people on foot. And so this will be a big moment for New York City streets, and hopefully we will prove the uh, efficacy of these new approaches that could be applicable to non-crisis scenarios or non-urgent crisis scenarios and hopefully forge a new model for uh, all of our all of our big streets. And so, you know, I'm not suggesting that that kind of um, crisis is facing Perth right now, but certainly there are moments when there are, are challenges and it's an opportunity to prove some new approaches. Legacy. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Get a legacy out of it. Yeah. And it's also, it's an opportunity. So it's not just running a train system, it's moving people. Yep. And I don't know if it's the case here, but, you know, we're not building very many new train lines. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's too capital intensive and we don't have the money for it. So it's more and more, it's going to be about to squeeze more efficiency out of our existing surface network. The trouble with building, if I may use that word, train lines, is that quite often you can only afford to build a project. You can't afford to build a system. Yes. You can't, you can't expand it wide enough. Yeah. One of the papers that came up here in the AITPM conference talked about the great opportunity of local trips that our whole, uh, much of the public debate is about the long trip. Sure, sure. But the local trip has an immense I saw opportunity. That. I saw that, and I thought it was a, a really terrific point because I think what the public often hears when you're pushing biking and walking is, uh, oh, you, you're expecting me to, like, you know, bike or walk, you know, 20Ks every day or whatever. And so what we discovered early on in New York was that an enormous share of driving trips and even transit trips were, like, very bikeable and walkable, very short, you know, something like, 45% of driving trips were like under two and a half Ks or something. And so we told the public, look, we're, we're, that's what we're focused on here, you know, and, and, and we're not trying to tell everyone they have to get out of their cars for these longer trips. And by the way, the more we get people out of their cars for those short trips, if you do still drive, they're going to be out of, your, <laughs> out of your way, you know. So, and that's a great point that we've gotten some traction with, you know, because without our public transit system and the biking and walking that we have now, you would not be able to drive in New York City, period, right? And so really, it's recognizing that sort of ecosystem that we have on our streets and getting beyond the sort of modalism, if you will, where it becomes drivers against bikers, against pedestrians and the rest, and recognizing that in a way, it's already a a multimodal environment. Even if you only drive or only take those other modes, there's still this interdependence at work 
And moving forward, generationally, we're seeing this trend towards not identifying as a particular kind of transportation, but as someone who will use all of those modes within a week or even a day. Mobility as a service, not being Thank locked into yes. to a, to a mode. Yes, I interviewed someone else, Ryan uh, Falconer, for, mm. who presented on that, and I'm doing a paper on that as well. Oh, nice. You know, that is a notion that we have been locked into the past, history, our you know, culture and whatever. Yeah. I, I, if I always had a car, the only decision I make in a new trip is which route to take and where to park. Right, right. Whereas the decision might be, well, hang on, there are alternatives, sure. which are cheaper, easier, you know, a whole range well, of things. Well, this trend uh, you know, that you point out, David, is, is you know, the private sector is, is rushing ahead. You know, uh, Uber just bought a bike share company in the States and Lyft just bought uh, Uber's competitor just bought um, our bike share concern in, in New York City, which also runs bike shares around the country. And so you can tell there's this race to be first to market with this you know, multimodal uh, platform that, as you suggest, will be the sort of ultimate mo mobility as a service where, where they will integrate transit options as well. So that's clearly where it's going. And so I think it's, it's high time our streets reflect this new reality. My paper talked about the fact that if we are going to share vehicles more, we're not talking enough in Australia of building units with bus base or yep. you know or pod base. Don't don't think of it just that you know yep. as shared vehicle base, so that you know that people can stop and actually go to to a location. Does this go to the point you raised earlier about it not being just seen as one person with one view? Your earlier point is that there's a whole range of people. I'm not saying you have to get Lycra and ride a bike at <laughs> right. a million miles an hour. Right. Is that part of an important part that it's not you're not just being seen as, say, the bike lobby? No, and I think I think that's the point that I, I hope we've arrived at where where we are seen as a voice for really um, not just bicycling, but certainly walking and also the proliferation of new, smaller, nimble electric vehicles that we're seeing all over the place now. That seems to be just like coming at us very quickly where there's several different models of these small battery charged vehicles from scooters to self-balancing wheels to skateboards, you know, all electric, electric powered or some combination of human and electric power. And so the question then, then, then becomes, is this, a, is this a good thing for our city or is, is it not? And so there's a big debate right now in New York where, oh, the, some of these things are cluttering up the street or they're making the streets disorderly or dysfunctional. And we're saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, they're all going below 30 Ks. They're small, they're not taking up a lot of room. Yeah, there's a little bit of clutter, but look at the clutter that we have from automobiles. <laughs> like they're taking the lion's share of the space. So I think we all, we all have to sort of adjust our uh, concept of what a city street is and recognize that really at the end of the day, it's about encouraging these more nimble, efficient, spatially smart modes of travel. And it's all coming, you know, very quickly. So I think us as transportation advocates or planners or engineers learning some new tricks about curbside management, building it into our design to say we're going to reserve that space for, you know, for loading, for pickup drop off, for parking these nimble vehicles. And so I think that that will help chip away at this conception that streets are just for... Does that get back to the narrative then that it's, but it's not just technology, it's technology for a sake. It's technology as a tool and the narrative then becomes this culture, the street as a culture rather than just a destination. Absolutely. And, and what, I, what I heard and what you just said, David, is also related, I think, for me to this notion that we are, and I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an erroneous notion that we are somehow engaging in social engineering, right? That 
that we, that we have a point of view about the street and we're pushing it on everybody else. And what I like to remind people of is that what we've had for the last 100 years is social engineering. We've, we've basically engineered out every other mode of travel because the car had just become so dominant. So these are always decisions that are being made. You're, there's always a value associated with these decisions. They're never objective. And that's when it really is incumbent upon our elected leaders to articulate a vision for, for our streets and for our city. You know, what kind of city do we want to live in? Do we want to be completely tethered to the automobile or do we want a city of choice? So I've been encouraged by some of what I've heard this week from, from John Kerry and some others about trying to define where we're going, you know, because we have to make choices and there are trade-offs and that's where political leadership comes in. Social engineering is not just me imposing my will, it could be the social engineering of the community saying where they want to go to. The polder model, which I love, and the Dutch, I, I think we hold the Dutch up as you know exemplars of what we're talking about, but they were really forced into this consensus model because their land was so constrained and they had to pump the water out. So it was an urgent task for them to sort of figure out uh, a way forward that worked for the community. And so I think that's what we're talking about is this recognition that, yeah, we can't achieve consensus. We're not going to make everybody happy. But when you look at the facts and where it's going and really the inability to build a car city that's not congested, that serves everybody, I think is really forcing us to evolve some new approaches to planning. You know, what we did today with this group planning exercise was terrific, you know, and I think writ large, you know, that's a model to take to, you know, bigger audiences. A number of people sat around, they had a plan in front of them, some marker pens, and said, what might we do? I I sat in and listened to one. I loved the fact that I heard expressions like, oh, wow, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. And I loved it. It wasn't prescriptive. Oh, we we must have a bikeway, so we... And, And the process is as important as the destination, as was said earlier. And so I think that kind of workshop model where instead of an agency foisting or the perception of foisting, you know, sort of a foregone conclusion on a community, there is more of that process. And, you know, we did a lot of that with the rollout of our bike share system in New York, where we went to the community and the the city went to the community and said, the bike share system is coming, you know, here are the reasons why we're doing it. But placing the stations, you know, we want to be sensitive about where they're going. And so it was very savvy where coming to the community and saying, look, we have all of these locations that might work. We have three times more locations identified than we really need. Help us narrow it down, right? And so that was a great place to start the conversation because it was empowering some locals to help choose the sites. And it was sort of setting the rules of engagement, you know, because there is a certain, not everything's negotiable, of course. You know, we're not going to just like throw the doors wide open. But I think when engaged with a combination of structure uh, and direction, but also genuine seeking of input, you know, from from folks. I think those two things combined can get us to a much better place. I wonder if we could run one of those exercises as a qualitative thing with some local people. I think that would be a terrific idea. And also maybe um, curating the group a little bit so you have a local merchant and, and the rest, you know, sort of at the table. And it doesn't say, tell me what you think, but first and foremost, tell me how you use it. Yeah, yeah. So that we might understand sure. what where you're coming from and why you're That's coming. It's a two-way street, yeah, for sure. The use of space and bikes that we might turn a couple of local parking spaces into docking things for bikes. That and, would and, Yeah, and it's funny, you know, the that's a very hot debate in New York right now, and I think we have changed some hearts and minds by pointing out that each of those car parking spaces turned into bike parking, you actually get like many times more parking spaces 
because you know they are parking spaces and so and we've actually done a cute thing where we put a time-lapse camera on a status quo curb with cars parked there all day long you see virtually no change and then a camera on a, on a bike share station, you see tons of turnover. That's very actively used space. And you see the same contrast when you just tweak parking regulation and pricing a little bit. And that's what you want. You want more active, vibrant streets with more turnover. And that's what the merchants ultimately, I think, will appreciate because then you're bringing more foot traffic and more customers to a street. I think the important point there is that you say you're measuring and that, in essence, you have science, not heavy didactic <laughs> academic <laughs> science, but real numbers on your side, an important point. I mean, you have to be evidence-based, especially in New York, where if you don't have the facts straight, you will you know, be savaged by the opposition. You know, and I, I think, too, what, what's happening with the profession is interesting. You know, gridlock, Sam Schwartz is one of my colleagues in New York. He coined the term gridlock. He's, you know, a traffic engineer, old school, but not old school because he's evolved. And he has a famous line about traffic engineering really having failed as a profession because it doesn't really work when you engineer only, only for cars. And the evidence is very clear that you can't build your way out of congestion ultimately. And that when you engineer just for cars, there's so many externalities that arise from you know health to access for low-income people, right? And so what we're seeing is a, I think, a renaissance in the sense that we're applying reason and, and evidence to these problems. And instead of just starting with the conclusion that everyone wants cars and so we're gonna plan for cars, you're looking at other ways to measure street performance from safety, to the number of people that you're moving instead of just vehicles, to the number of people who are using public space as a, an amenity, you know, as, as a way to um, be in a city and enjoy a city. Looking at even like retail receipts to see what kinds of street designs and management regimes are more um, tied to, uh, you know, healthy retail environment. I mean, in Times Square, we, you know, the rents have tripled which may not be such a great thing um, in terms of, you know, but the, the impact of these measures in New York on the local economy, retail, sales, rents have just, has just been, you know, amazing. So I think increasingly having a fact-based conversation, looking at best practice and as evidence-based as it can be, as was pointed out earlier too, still using that to tell stories because most people don't see the world through facts and evidence. They see the world through compelling narratives and stories. And so um, you need both. And I love the fact that, you know, my job as an advocate is as much about uncovering those facts as it is about weaving them into interesting stories that I think people can get excited about. And so it's been a pleasure to come to Perth and tell those stories. Mm. And also um, I'm going to be taking a lot back because uh, what you're doing here there's such a genuine desire to shake up the status quo and to figure it out. And it's been very inspiring for me to have a front row seat to that. Paul, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that was Paul Steely-White, the Executive Director of Transport Alternatives in New York, who is striving to help the community come together to get more livable cities. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.